This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. The U.S. Court of Appeals has rejected the motion to remove the hold on the immigration ban in the United States. That has angered the president, took to Twitter, uh, saying that the security of the nation is at stake, uh, that the decision was a disgrace. Uh, a lot of tweets and capital letters, and which usually means yelling and that kind of stuff. To talk more about all of this, George Breckenridge, retired po- uh, political science professor at Mac- uh, McMaster University, is with us and on the line now. Hello, George. How are you today? Oh, do we have George? Yeah. Oh, you there, George? Yes, uh, I am, yeah. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Greatly appreciated. Uh, what are your thoughts on, uh, well, first, well... <laughs> I guess on the fact that uh, we are where we are, it seems that uh, Donald Trump is zero for two. Will this continue, or do you think it's just a matter of time before he gets his way? Well, I think it it, sh- it shows us something about how uh, how he how he governs. I mean, what happened in this? The reason this this is such a mess is that they went ahead with this executive order, you know, banning people, banning more refugees, and banning people for uh, from these countries. And officially, it's supposed to be only, you know, a number of three months, I think, or four months in one case. Um, and the argument was that this was, there was a, you know, there was an immediate crisis of, of ter- for possible terrorists coming in, and that they had to act right away. And they didn't consult, as you would, as you always would, with an executive order. You consult the department's concerns. You get advice, as you know, from the legal people. Is this legal? Do we do it this way? How, how do we do it? And and at a minimum, you let the departments know who are supposed to execute it. And none of that was done. The, the evidence seems to be that they deliberately didn't consult anybody. They didn't tell MD in Congress. They didn't do any of that. They didn't give instruct advance instructions to the departments as to how to how to implement this. So it came completely out of the blue. And so there was a complete mess. And as a result of that, of course, the Americans, you know, go to court at the drop of a hat. <laughs> and so up to uh, the count now is there are 50 lawsuits, most of them on behalf of individuals arguing they've been denied, denied due process, denied their rights, because these were people who had legitimate visas. You know, some of them, when they, when they got to New York, knew, who knew nothing about this, were questions for hours, or some of them were sent back, you know. So there's all kinds of people, uh, lawsuits on behalf of individuals who feel that, who argue their rights were, were, um, viola- invalid, you know, violated. <clears throat> but of course, the case that came up first was the state, the case by Washington State. And that's the case where the judge, the district court judge, the lower to the trial court judge, uh, ordered a ban or a hold on the, on the, executive order going into effect. <clears throat> that was then appealed to the appeals court judge, the judges in San Francisco, and they ruled three of them. They, 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 so these are things always held in by a number of you know, three judges at a time. And the three judges ruled unanimously <laughs> to uphold the hold, so to speak. And so the Trump, did, you know, Trump typically, the way he does, the way he's acted all through the whole process of getting the nomination and everything, immediately attacks and belittles. You know, he's called it a so-called judge. This is just a political decision. So attacks the court process and attacks, you know, the judge individually. That's what he does. And But they have, they're now faced with a dilemma as to what to do next. They can either appeal it. The only appeal left is to the Supreme Court itself. And the Supreme Court at the minute only has eight justices who seem to be divided politically, four, 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 
And if they can't, if he can't get a major, if they couldn't get a majority out of uh, judgment out of them, then the appeals court judge uh, um, decision stands. You see, so it's risky going to the Supreme Court. The alternative, what what normally would happen is, they would go back to the dis- to the district court to the trial court, because the courts have not ruled on whether, for example, the executive order discriminated on religious grounds, which is unconstitutional things like that. So the the actual merits of whether this is a valid executive order have really not been heard. All that's been heard is the fact that judge thought there was sufficient evidence that possibly it might be unconstitutional, that it should not go into effect right away. So, I mean, and the problem with the whole thing is that I think this is done essentially for show. They're acting so precipitously and in such a dramatic fashion um, it's simply done for sure because a lot of people argue the American immigration system needs to be re- overhauled in a variety of ways. The Congress has been unable to do that. And this is not the way you do it. <laughs> and so it was simply a gesture. You know, he said he would ban Muslims and all the rest of it during the campaign. So it seems like, a, you know, the, he decided he had to do something. But they ended up botching it badly and, and ended up all tangled up in court in, in court in, in a whole range of states. And the question is, what do they do now? A Bush administration lawyer has said that the reason Trump lost this executive order was, as you just mentioned, it was very haphazard and yeah. rushed. If yeah. he had done his due diligence with this, where would we be now? Well, I think there would still be. If he was doing something like this, we did it more carefully and more in a more targeted fashion um there would still there would still be court uh, the, the, people would still go to court and you would get right away to the question of is this a legitimate order i mean or is it does it violate the constitution by for example discriminating against muslims you know is it essentially a muslim ban in disguise and that's what would have happened if they'd done it carefully um, unless they had, you know, unless they had done something much less dramatic. Um, and, you know, the experts say what's needed is, you know, a, a good look at the immigration system. There may be loopholes in the immigration system which need to be closed, but you can't do it this way. The Congress has to be involved, you know. So, um, yeah, I mean, but but I think it does indicate the, the kind of way in which. Now, of course, the other part of the of the situation was that the rest of the government, the Trump appointees to um, the Justice Department, for example, things like that, were not really in place. But the evidence again seems to be that they they deliberately didn't want to consult anybody. They wanted to do something dramatic, and it turned out to be something chaotic, which tangled them up in the courts. What's the sense in using the strong-arm approach if you don't get what you want in the end? Well, I guess they thought they would get what they want, you know, because part of their argument was that, uh, and this this argument uh, is a more, the argument over how how much power does the president have to issue executive orders, in other words, where the Congress is, is simply out of the process. And uh, President Obama used executive orders as well, and at least one of these was blocked by the courts. I forget exactly which one it was. So there's always an argument about whether the president has the power to issue specific executive orders. And so that, uh, but the the merits of this particular case as to whether he's, you know, uh, and, and the president does have, the Congress has given the president considerable power, considerable discretion 
on immigration matters. You know, that's why Obama used a lot of executive orders, which the Republicans, of course, objected to, and was one of, one of the say, was blocked by the courts. Um, but the question is, is always, has he overstepped the authority which which he has? And then in addition to that, in this particular case, because it, it banned uh, people from Muslim countries, or some Muslim countries, that was part of the problem, you see. The big Muslim countries where previous um, the people, for example, the 9-11 attackers came from, mm-hmm. were excluded from this. Now, what, what's the rationale for that? Because they were mostly Saudi or Egyptian or others have come from Pakistan. All these, the big Muslim countries, predominantly Muslim countries, were all ex- excluded, and just the smaller ones. And nobody has come from these countries has perpetrated anything in the, in, in the United States. So the rationale... The argument is simply the rationale. What's the rationale for doing it this way? And is this simply a a way of uh, trying to ban Muslims altogether from the United States, from entering the United States? And as I say, I think they did it that they did. They wanted to do something dramatic to show that they were going to do what they said they would do. But they ended up doing it in a very hurried and botched way. Is, is is this just delaying the obvious? Is it inevitable that eventually he'll just get what he wants, watered down or not? Or, well, one alternative is to back off and and abandon the current one and try to go the proper route, what he should have done in the first place, and what what I'm certain Obama did and other presidents have done with executive orders is get, is consult more widely and get advice from the law and legal people and, and, you know, external affairs and people like things like that as to the best way to do this, to accomplish what he says he wants to do. And um, that's the other option. They could simply abandon the current situation as a lost cause. Um, because, you see, if it goes back to the district court, to the trial court, this is going to take a long time, you know, to go through the various, then there would have to be a judgment, then there would be appeals, then they would go to the Supreme Court. Um, so unless they were very lucky and the trial court decided that it was legitimate, you know, it wasn't unconstitutional. So that's the kind of dilemma they're in. They can either back off and try to do it properly, which is going to take a little bit of time, or they can let it go to the uh, trial, back to the trial court and, and do for, for an argument on the merits of the argument of the case, whether it's legitimate within his powers, whether it's unconstitutional or not. And that's going to take some time. And so um, that's the choice they have to make. Uh, he obviously was uh, quite adamant, tweeting in capital letters yeah. that they're going to continue off to the... Well, the, that's what he does, isn't it? Yeah, yeah the Supreme Court. Um, is that a, you, you mentioned that is a gamble if he does that, yeah. because it, it, they could end up upholding, uh, especially if there's a tie, what is already there. Well, that's right. And particularly in the current circumstances, it's a real gamble, yeah. So uh, let's let's uh, uh, see what happens. Hypothet- hypothetical situation here. What if uh, he wins at the Supreme Court level. What if he loses at the Supreme Court level? Well, if he wins at the Supreme Court level, the Supreme Court would simply be asked on the question of the hold. You see, that's the that's the question in front of the courts. It was in front in front of the appeals court, and so the Supreme Court would simply be he they would ask the Supreme Court to lift the hold. But it still doesn't. There's still all the rest of the lawsuits that are on the merits of the of the case, and whether the whether the executive order is unconstitutional or not. And so this, because the Supreme Court would not. Address, the Supreme Court is very careful not to address, to to limit what it 
decides to the issue coming from the appeals court. So they're not going to decide on the merits of the case. They would simply decide on, on um, you know, whether to continue the hold or not, or to lift the hold. And if they, even if they lift the hold, you see, then all the other lawsuits come into place claiming that the merit, you know, that, that it's unconstitutional. So, um, and, and particularly given that there are only eight justices and they, they are on, on the face of it, they're often divided 4-4, then that's the, you know, then they, they might say, and the, the Supreme Court could also refuse to hear it. It doesn't have to hear everything, every case from hmm. from uh, an appeals court. It could simply say, you know, no thanks. Uh, and Or it could say no thanks in the current circumstances because they know that they're very likely to be evenly divided, and so there's no point. Wow, wouldn't that be interesting if yeah, that happened? It, yeah, <laughs> Oh, my. <laughs> They've done that on at least one or two other cases where they, they sort of kicked the, you know, they kind of punted. Yeah. And on the, because it was clear that they were divided 4-4 and couldn't get a majority opinion out of it. How does America view this? Is it still, depending on who you ask, is it still that divided? Or well, is, the, polls, is the balance starting to sway that, hey, this guy's well, getting out of hand? No, there were polls last night, uh, polling on, on all these questions. And, and the, the general public opinion clear is that, you know, the president should obey the courts. And, uh, the, but the, the exception to that is the Trump supporters. When you poll Trump supporters separately, they narrowly, narrowly admittedly, think the president should ignore the courts and go ahead or should have the power to go ahead without, without, regardless of what the court says, which, of course, is, you know, raises all kinds of fundamental constitutional questions. But the, but the initial polling shows that the public is not behind the president on this. Uh, your thoughts on the Monday meeting between uh, Trump and Trudeau. Yeah. How, how does he prepare for that over this weekend? How well, does Trudeau they, prepare? They, they, the, the sensible thing is they've, they've, they've tried to lay the groundwork mm-hmm. so that uh, Christian Freeland and others have been down there talking to their equivalents. She was down talking to the Secretary of State, and they've had other people do that. So they've been trying to prepare the ground very carefully. Uh, and that's what you do usually before you allow a summit to go ahead. You don't want people just to wander in and start yeah. chatting, you know. So they have to have a lot of preparation. And um, Trump, um, Trump can be can be in person, face to face. He's often much better, much more you know calmer and reasonable mm. <laughs> and pleasant than he is when he gets on the phone, for example, or when he's when he gets on, when he starts to tweet. And so I would think it's going to be a perfectly okay meeting. Uh, Trudeau is a is a charming, you know, guy, and everybody. This is him. really his strong suit, isn't yeah, it, George? I mean, he sh- this is where he should knock it out of the park because this is what he does. Exactly. He's the guy that walks into the room, sucks the oxygen out of it, and yeah. uh, and takes command. So, you know, at, at the end of the day, with these two being polar opposites, yeah. how do you divide the personality in the business? How do you balance all of this? Well, as I say, it's it's. It, People who have experience in these in these things, like like people like Brian Mulroney, I mean, they argue that personal connections are extremely important. Mm-hmm. Now they're not all important, because fundamentally the interests of the political interests of different countries and different prime ministers and presidents um, are what really count. And so we've had lots of cases where. Um, the prime minister and the president simply didn't get on, and Baker and Kennedy and, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so there's no guarantee, but the, but Borudi argues, and I think a lot of other people would agree with him, 
who have experience in these matters that personal establishing a personal relationship um, is a, is a major component of of when you come to discuss policy and that sort of thing. And so, so as I say, Trump seems to be much better when you get him in person and sit down with him. He can be pleasant, you know. He's not. He doesn't yell at people in face to face. He's not not uh, as far as we know. So I, I expect the meeting to be perfectly pleasant. And of course, I don't think anything particular is going to come out of it. What what Trudeau wants to do is get a sense of how serious. Trump is about uh, renegotiating or leaving NAFTA and things like that. So I, w- I think it's a great idea. I think he's, he's uh, as we said, you know, he's, he's a, the kind of guy that people like and get on with, and he's very pleasant, and they get a lot of charisma, and uh, I think the meeting will go fine. How now, what, do- what comes out of that? I mean, who knows? But I-, I can't wait to see the selfie, George. That's all I'm waiting for. <laughs> uh, how does he balance Trump? Ba- how does Trudeau balance Trump back here? I mean, obviously the opposition want him to go after blood, and and you know we yeah, don't like this, well, we don't like I mean, that. How does he balance well, what Canadians he, he, he think? He made it sort of clear, sort of indirectly, that he didn't agree with the, the executive order and that that the immigrants were still welcome in Canada, etc. But I think the sensible thing to do is, I mean, Trump is the president for four years, whether we like it or not. And so you really, he is somebody you have to deal with. Now, it's still not clear. I mean, this is very early days. And so it's still not clear how the whole administration is going to shake down. I suspect that increasingly he'll be, he'll have to rely on, you know, the Secretary of State and people like that, advisors, who have already stated a lot of positions in contradiction to, to the way, to what said, what Trump said when he was campaigning. So I suspect that the, the government will the, will settle down a lot once more people are in place, and that could still take another month or two. Um, but that being said, Trump is still there. He's still Trump, and he obviously feels obliged to try to do some of the some of the things he said he would do some of the you know like like renegotiating nafta and, and building a wall and all that sort of thing will uh, uh trudeau and find it much more difficult than he expects i think will uh trudeau invite trump to canada well that's a good question i mean uh theresa may invited him to britain right off the bat mm-hmm. <laughs> and get taking a lot of flag for it I I'm sure he will, you know. I'm sure he will, but then, or maybe just meet him somewhere, like on an island or what yeah, have you. Yeah, well, but but inviting him, you know, you still got to actually agree on the date and yeah. do a lot of the speed work. So even just inviting him, you know, come please come to Canada sometime. It is not doesn't mean it's going to happen very soon necessarily. So what do you think we'll be talking about come Tuesday? And let me ask you one other question: If you had a meeting with the Prime Minister prior to his meeting with Trump, what would you ask him to say? What would you want him to say? <laughs> well, repeat a lot of the things that, that the others have been saying: is that this is a very close relationship. It's a very balanced relationship in terms of trade. And, uh, you know, they need us. We're their biggest customer for, I think it's 35 of the 50 states. Uh, you know, to emphasize that argument, the importance of Canada for the United States, and the importance of the United States for Canada is fairly obvious, but, but Canada is, in fact, important for the United States, although they often, you know, take us for granted. Um, just that, essentially, and, and have a pleasant 
conversation, maybe flatter him a little bit. He likes that. <laughs> but you know, George, like even on immigration, I mean, look what yeah. Canada is compared to the United yeah, States. How do they not touch on that? Because they're both going at this from opposite ends of the stick. They are on if a they, whole lot of issues. If I they're mean, talking about immigration, how do they how do they bridge that gap? Well, we don't need to in a way. I mean, we we do. You know, the, the liberals do. Uh, our government does what you know most Canadians like. I think on on, on these issues and. The American situation has, a lot of people do think the American immigration system needs a radical overhaul. And, you know, the, the Congress has had tried a couple of times and got nowhere because uh, the, the parties simply don't agree on how to do this. Um, so, you know, I mean, what they do and what we do are really two, two, two separate things. George Breckenridge has been with us, retired political science professor, McMaster University. George, as always, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank, Thank you. you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, I don't think we ever thought we'd ever see this. In, em- in Emerson, Alberta last year, 403 people entered Canada near the town through the states as refugees. In December... Uh, a pair from Ghana came through by foot, lost most of their fingers in the process due to exposure and frostbite. An emergency meeting was held last night to find out what is going on. We're going to talk to uh, an MP from uh, Emerson coming up in just a sec. First, let's bring in Giddy Maman. He is a senior partner, founder at Maman, uh, Sandaluk and Kingwell LLP. He is an immigration lawyer and with us now. Hello, Giddy. How are you today? Hey, Scott. Doing great. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. I'm not sure Canadians would have thought that Emerson, Alberta, was a hotspot for refugees. How big an issue is this? Or is it? Well, it's, it's actually just the tip of the iceberg. It's going, to, it's going to manifest itself, this phenomenon, right across the border, I think, from B.C. all the way to the other end. Um, because of the upheaval in the United States right now. Uh, Our border is porous. You know it. I know it. Everybody knows it. And those people who are under pressure in the United States to get out and find some semblance of a life somewhere else uh, are going to start looking north. There's no question about it. So uh, when does this become an issue? When when does this become something that we have to address or put more resources into? Well, we're already behind. Securing our border is a, is an enormous task. Uh, you know what they've been talking about uh, down uh, down the states about the, their southern border. Um, I don't think that we have the political will nor the resources to actually do that because of the type of border that we have with the United States. But we have about 12 million people in the United States who have no status. They're seeing a president who seems to be doing what he says he's going to do, and he's determined to resolve this. Now, either by way of maybe um, giving some permanent residence to some of the uh, 12 million people who've been there maybe for a long time, but there's going to be millions still who have nowhere to go. And they're not going to, you know, many of them are not going to just simply give up their, their standard of living and go back to Mexico where they may have no jobs. And if they did, they wouldn't be making the same that they're making in the United States. Those people are going to say, you know what, let's try our luck in, in, in Canada. Uh, there's certainly lots of places that they can cross. Um, they're not going to go to a port of entry because, you know, as soon as they identify themselves and they show that they have no status in the United States, they're, they're going to be turned around immediately. So they're just going to look for a hole in the fence and they're going to cross. And that's what we're already seeing. 
So uh, obviously they're entering this way because, as you mentioned, if they went through traditional methods, they would be turned away. So what happens once they're here? What is their refugee status? Is that what it is? Well, first of all, uh, that's an assumption. We don't know what the person is going to do once he crosses the border, right? He's just going to come in, so he has an option, right? He can go and say that he fears for his life in his country of nationality. Let's say that's Mexico. Uh, Our Immigration Refugee Board would conduct a hearing, and in most cases would say, no, you're not a refugee. Uh, You're not being persecuted because of your race, religion, your nationality, or political opinion, or membership in in a particular social group. So no, you are not a refugee, you're a rejected refugee, and we're going to send you back to your country, namely Mexico. The alternative is just to cross the border and do nothing. Just slip into society, yeah. you know, rent an apartment, find a job, and hope that no one finds you. And that's what I think the vast majority will do. How easy is that, Giddy? Like, what's that life like? Well, I mean, I deal with these people all the time. They're here. They're, they, you know, they, they're afraid every time they see a police car drive by. They're yeah. afraid that anything that they do, you know, uh, is going to trigger a problem. You know, if you're you know, uh, your rear light in the car is is blown out. You get pulled over by a policeman. That could be the last day uh, that you have here free in Canada. So it's a very tough life. But when you compare that to your options, it may just be what you have to do. And keep in mind, a lot of people have family uh, abroad, and they suffer the hardships here of living that kind of lifestyle so that they can pay for the education of their kids abroad and maybe send money to their family and, you know, keep them going. So it's a tremendous pull factor. Is uh, is the fear from Donald Trump's policy enough to make uh, or enough to qualify someone as a refugee in this country? Oh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Uh, you, are, you have to make a claim against the country of your nationality. So if you're a Mexican and you're sitting in, in the United States and you come to Canada and say, well, I'm afraid to go back to the United States, well, that's not a claim because you have no right in the United States. You have to make a claim against a country where you have the right to go to, namely your country of nationality. We only give protection to people who have nowhere to go. So even if in some bizarre situation a person was facing persecution in the United States, which is inconceivable, right, uh, they would say, well, then why can't you go back to Mexico? And the fact that I'm going to have no job, that I have no one there, that I have no home there, that I have uh, no one that I, I can go to is not is not a basis for a refugee claim. That's what we call uh, an economic migrant. So what of the people that we've heard of of late that have crossed at Emerson, uh, will uh, will they get to stay? Will they be sent home? Okay, so those individuals are not necessarily Mexicans, right? So uh, I don't know if you've heard of the Safe Third Country Agreement, but Mm -hmm. basically what we are trying to do through this agreement is prevent uh, refugees from all over the world coming to North America and getting two kicks at the can. So, for example, if they go to the States first and they don't, they don't succeed, they should be prevented from making a second claim in Canada and vice versa. So, so these people who are crossing the border and risking their, you know, their fingers and toes to cross the border in, in the freezing cold are doing so because if they go to a regular port of entry, at the port of entry, they can determine whether or not that they've already made a claim. And if they have made a claim, they will not be allowed to come in and make a second one. Right. So what do they do? They go in across the border where they're undetected. They surface and they say, I'm making a claim. And now once they're in Canada, 
the safe third country agreement no longer applies. It only applies to somebody crossing the border uh, at a legitimate port of entry. Hmm. So what do both Canadian and U.S. officials feel? How do they feel about this? How concerned are they about this trend? Well, quite frankly, I think the Americans... Uh, uh, you know the the uh, the, the new uh, administration couldn't care less right. the effect it's going to have on Canada. That's that's going to be our problem. That's uh, Justin Trudeau's problem to deal with. Their concern is is cleaning their own house, their own basement, and uh, getting rid of people who don't belong there or regularizing their status. And what implications that has for others? Uh, it has for others. Remember what he said at the inauguration. We we are now focused on America first. So the fact that this is going to put pressure on the, the northern border of the United States is uh, for uh, Justin Trudeau to deal with. And, and I will tell you that that is going to be a tremendously difficult trick for him because he has come across as, you know, the good guy, the compassionate guy, the champion of the refugees. But that was when we were talking about 25,000, and that was a record that we've never seen before. We're talking about potentially millions. And uh, that's a whole different scale, a whole different number. And Trudeau could very, very quickly see the tide of public opinion going against him uh, if he even suggests that he's going to entertain that. And the only way to prevent it is, you know, build a wall or build a barrier or enforce the border. Hmm. And that's not something that I think he's going to be able to swallow too easily. So you don't think this will be an issue at all uh, during the Trump and Trudeau meeting on Monday? Well... Uh, it's, it's an issue whether they're going to deal with that. I'm not sure because I don't know what they can possibly agree upon. Uh, even if Justin Trudeau were to say to uh, you know uh, President Trump, uh, you know Donald, maybe you shouldn't be doing this. It's going to cause us problems. He's going to say that's your problem. I got to do what I got to do, and you've got to do what you've got to do. So I don't know that this is something that is going to be a productive item on the agenda. If I was uh, Justin Trudeau, I'd see if I can make some grounds elsewhere and then come back home and figure out what he's going to do, uh, you know, sit down with uh, the Minister of Public uh, Safety and Security and the CBSA and the RCMP and see what they can come up with in terms of a plan. But if, if in fact, Donald Trump starts to push people out of, the, out of the country, especially people who've been there for a few years, you're going to see a major, major um, uh, repercussion. Yeah. Whatever pressure is going to be put on the southern border is simply going to be transferred to the northern border. And at the same intensity, as they say, you know, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. Right. So that's what's going to happen. You seal up that border on the south, the pressure is going to, uh, is going to come up here. Just over 400 people uh, entered Canada through uh, this method last year through Emerson uh, Winter now. We're hearing, as you said, the story of people walking in and, and losing uh, digits and such. What happens in the summer? Will there be a mass flood? Um, you know, I don't want to say yes because it, it'll, it'll make me sound like I'm, I'm crying. You know, the sky is falling. yeah. yeah. You know, but I don't really know uh, uh, any other way to answer the question because it's, it's, it's normal. You have a family from Mexico. They've been sitting there for 10, 15 years. The kids are in school. The dad's got a job. He's got a pickup truck. He's got a construction job. The wife is, you know, has got her friends in the Pilates class and the neighbors and the softball league and all this stuff. They got a whole life. And then 
somebody is going to say, you know, they're around the corner, they're coming to get you, they're coming to get you. What do you think they're going to do? They're going to go back to Mexico and say, hey, let's get used to, you know, let's, let, the, let the kids get used to a school system they're completely unfamiliar with. Hmm. Let me give up all my friends, all of my wealth, all of my standard of living, you know, dump the house at whatever price I can get, you know, and go back to Mexico, I just don't think that's realistic. You are going to have a significant portion of those people saying, you know what, I heard there's a hole in the fence on the northern border, let's try our luck there. So and I think that's what's going to happen. And, and, and in what numbers, I have no idea, because this is an unprecedented situation. But the logic, the, 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 the laws of physics uh, simply dictate that this is what's going to happen. Uh, you're talking a lot about refugees uh, in and around the situation with Mexico and the wall there, that if you squeeze one end, they're going to come up north. What about refugees from those restricted areas? Do you, do, you, do you feel that it will be mostly Mexicans who just don't want to go south, or do you think there's refugees from other parts of the world, including areas where uh, Donald has uh, implemented a, a ban? Right. So, so let's suppose I was in the Middle East and I needed to get out of the Middle East. I may have very limited options. Um, you know, uh, there are smugglers who can maybe get you to the States. Maybe some of them can get you to Canada. Some may not be able to get you, you both. So we know that that's going to slow the trickle to the States. Whether or not they're able to penetrate Canada from abroad is different because you've got to get on an airplane. That means you've got to have a passport. You have to have a secure passport. We have CBSA officers involved in what we call interdiction, which is we send our officers right to the airports overseas, which are high risk, and they eyeball people getting on the plane, and if they don't, look, if, if they don't like the looks of them, they deny them boarding. And so the, the, the more secure passports that we have, the interdiction is going to make it more difficult. But of course, where there's a will, there's a way. They are going to find their way to Canada. They may, be, they, they may start using more dangerous methods. I mean, we've seen people, you know, uh, climb into the, uh, you know, the, uh, under the belly of an airplane in the wheel well yeah. to get to Canada. They'll, they'll do anything to get to Canada. But, uh, but what those numbers are, are, are going to mean, I, I don't know that me particularly, I'm worried about those numbers. I'm thinking about the numbers uh, for Mexico because those numbers are right on our doorstep. They can simply walk across the border it's a very porous border. You don't have to go through, you know, uh, screening lines and things like that. So I think that's really where the government needs to think about. It. And like I said uh, uh, earlier in the interview, that I think we're already behind. Uh, if we, if a, a year ago we took Donald Trump seriously and we contemplated his success, which nobody did, mm. uh, then we might have started, you know, recruiting um, uh, border officers, having some plan for offense or tightening things up. But we, like the rest of the world, have been caught completely flat-footed. But Canada is going to be the one on the front line of the um, uh, of, of this uh, potential immigration crisis. There's no question about that. Giddy Maman has been with us, senior partner, founder of Maman Sandaluk Kingwell LLP, an immigration lord, uh, lawyer. Giddy, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Pleasure, Scott. Have thank a great you. Weekend. You too. All right, let's move on and bring in Cliff Graydon. He is a Manitoba PC MP for Emerson, Alberta, and is with us now. Hello, Cliff. How are you today? Hi, Scott. I'm doing real well. Um, just to correct you, I'm an MLA from Manitoba. Okay. 
Uh, and Emerson is in Manitoba, directly south of Winnipeg. So, Cliff, tell us how this is affecting Emerson. How big an issue is this? Well, it was certainly, uh, certainly a fairly large issue on the weekend when there was a, a large uh, contingency of refugees that crossed the border. It has been going on for some time, though, Scott. We've been having... You know, uh, say last year there were 403 that it came across the border at different times. <clears throat> but yet this last weekend was uh, it was overwhelming for the people in a very small community. The community is not large community. So where are these people from? It would appear that they're uh, the majority, and uh, and this is what we ascertained yesterday from talks with CBSA and uh, and the RCMP that they're from Minneapolis area. And what was their country of origin? What's their nationality? That I'm not totally familiar with. I, I really don't know for sure. There's been rumors of different things, and so I don't know for sure. And what reasoning did they say for doing what they did? There was uh, no reason given, like CBSA did the interviews with them and so on and so forth, and so did the RCMP, and don't talk to them personally. So what happens to them when they arrive in Emerson? What happens then? In most cases, what they do is uh, they're, they're apprehended. They actually phone 911 and, and tell... Uh, the operators, that they are in Emerson. And the RCMP and the CBSA then apprehend them, and then they're interviewed, and uh, then they are also checked for records and so forth, and then transferred to Winnipeg, which is uh, 65 miles farther north. So, carried on then. So, what happens after that? Any idea what has happened to the majority, or the you know where? What happens? How are they dispersed after that? Well, at this point, uh, they become uh, what would I say wards of uh, Manitoba, and there are uh, there are a number of uh, organizations that step forward to help them with a number of things. Manitoba, of course, is responsible for their lodging. If uh, if they don't have any lodging, we're also responsible for their education and uh, and their health care. Are they are they considered are they considered legitimate refugees, Cliff? It would appear that they are. Uh, and again this is unprecedented. Uh, Refugees coming from our neighboring country, we uh, have. But uh, I would I would say that as the MLA in this community, and I have a, a long stretch of the U.S. border and Manitoba, I've been certainly inspired by the humanitarianism of of the good folks in this area. In fact, uh, one community has just brought in or has sponsored three Syrian families with a total of 30-some people. Uh, and Bosnia was a big issue. The people in our communities uh, stepped up to the plate. And I go back to uh, when Vietnam was an issue. Uh, uh, I know that my family uh, stepped up with
nine other families to, to uh, sponsor uh, Vietnamese to come to Canada. So we're certainly a, a welcoming community, and uh, it was just that we were overwhelmed uh, by by the event on on uh, the weekend. So uh, obviously, we've heard of the stories of people coming through the summer month or through the winter months. Are you worried that there's going to, you're going to be overwhelmed come the summer months? Well, I guess it's all speculation, and, uh, and it, we had a meeting with uh, with CBSA and the RCMP and uh, the local municipality uh, yesterday, and, and some other people as well uh, yesterday. And the theme of that was uh, we have to be prepared because we don't know what there will be coming. So it, there is a there is a group put together, a working group put together to to know what to do if this should happen. All right, we're going to have to let uh, Cliff Graydon go there. He is uh, breaking up uh, MLA uh, for Emerson, uh, Manitoba, of course, where they have seen uh, 403 people uh, arrive in Canada from the United States as refugees. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We talked about this uh, a couple of weeks ago when it was announced that, uh, that I guess, Black Lives Matter uh, sort of ran roughshod over a uh, a Pride executive meeting, and uh, somehow at the end of it all, Toronto police were then banned from participating in the Pride parade. Uh, still wanted and needed to supply uh, the free security and supervision that the police always do, but they just don't want their floats in the parade. Um, uh, we've had many members of the LGBT community uh, on the air in regard to this uh, and and have heard their stories and um, I have tremendous sympathy for what they're saying and, and, and what they're doing but in each and every one I asked when I did ask them how can exclusion possibly help this scenario they could not give me an answer so I strongly disagree with this I think it's wrong I think that uh, you know, the gay community represent or is represented in all walks of life, not just in a couple of special interest groups. And again, although those their needs need to be heard and they need to be addressed, I'm not sure if banning anybody from anything, and let's be honest, this is a ban, how does that solve anything? How does that lead to further discussion? How does that do anything but lead to divisiveness? And we have seen the results of that when Donald Trump has tried to implement a travel ban. This is the same sort of thing. You're banning a segment of the population from participating. And again, I'm not sure who's representing either of these communities. Because it seems to be a kangaroo court at best. So the statement that has come from the Toronto Police Service from uh, Chief Mark Sanders says, uh, we have made great strides with the LGBT communities. It is an, an inclusive relationship I am proud of, and I know the men and women of the service feel the same way. We understand the LGBT communities are divided. Boy, are they ever. 
Uh, and to enable those differences to be addressed, I have decided the Toronto Police Service will not participate this year in the Pride Parade. What we will do is to continue to hold our annual Pride Reception. Good for them. I want to make it clear that this will have no impact on our ongoing outreach to LGBT communities. We will continue to develop respectful relationships and build new ones, focusing on those who feel marginalized with the trans and radicalized, uh, or sorry, racialized communities. I will sit down with any group who feels marginalized, who comes to the table with ideas on how to make things better. We have come a long way. We have much to do. And, of course, uh, it is uh, signed by Chief Mark Sanders. So uh, they have come a long way. They still do have much to do. But I can't see how eliminating anyone or the police out of this discussion is inclusive. I do not see the reason for banning the Toronto Police Service from this parade. And I think that both Pride... Uh, well, I'll just leave it at that. I think Pride has to get their act together and come up with a reasonable executive that represents all in the gay community, which are represented by all walks of life, not, the, not, the, not just the special interests that we're seeing. To talk more about all of this, Ross McLean is with us, crime specialist, security expert, RossMcLeanSecurity.com. To find out more, you can check out his Facebook page at uh, Crime Power Politics. He is with us now. Hello, Ross. How are you today? I'm doing good, Scott. But uh, like you, very, very disappointed in uh, in the happenings that are going on with the Pride Parade. Uh, obviously, you've been a Toronto police officer. You know what this uh, relationship has been like over the years and, of course, the great strides that have been made. How can inclusion or exclusion, rather, possibly move this discussion for, uh, further? Well, it absolutely does not move it farther. And, you know, I was reflecting on this when I started in the police department, you know, back in the 80s. I actually covered down in the area of Church Street and, and the whole thing, and I policed the area. And we just went about our job and enforced the law as the law is written. The law doesn't say, you know, if a gay person does this or a hetero person does that or a blue-eyed person does that. It just says if a person does something. So you just you enforce the law the way you enforce the law for anybody else. But certainly from that time, there's been a mountain of change and a mountain of movement uh, between the community, the gay community, uh, its place in Toronto, and its place within the police force. And the relationship, I think, is doing, was doing anyways, fantastic, up until we've had this schism. I mean, Scott, I, I'm told that the coppers who work the parade, they're asked well in advance for it. They all volunteer for it. They all want to get spots in it to go down to it. Because guess what? They may be gay themselves. They have a family member who's gay, a son or daughter who's gay. They relate to the issue for what it is. Yeah. They're proud to stand up for that issue. They're proud to show that it's in all walks of life. And they take it real personal when they're told that their, their participation is not wanted. It's, it's a real insult to a lot of them. How, uh, what are your thoughts on how the chief has handled this? Um. <laughs> Well, look, I, I, I think this chief has got a hard road to hoe in this city. It's always a hard road to hoe. Uh, I hate when politics get involved. And this is, uh, as far as I can tell, this is all politics. Uh, so much of this is what it is. I mean, the group here that we're talking about uh, that's really the, the, the sand in the, in, the, in the engine of this thing is Black Lives Matter, who, look, they are at best a fringe group, at best a fringe group. 
There, there's no helping them. There's, there's no doing anything for these people. I mean, they're standing in the middle of uh, University Avenue last week, uh, telling us that uh, Pierre, uh, Justin Trudeau is a white supremacist. The town is that our whole country was built on the premise of genocide, of killing black men. I mean, they're just, they're, they're so fringe and they're so far out there. It's unbelievable you're going to let a group like that, for pride, to let a group like that take over its mission. And I'm going to read you right now from its mission statement here that they have printed right on their webpage. Pride Toronto brings people together yeah. to celebrate the history, courage, and diversity of our community. Their values, Scott. Inclusivity. We welcome everyone and we want everyone to be welcomed and we are accessible to everyone as we create a sense of belonging and shared purpose so they're violating their own mission statement their own values here i think they should do a little reassessment of where they are in the community uh did the chief have a choice at this point i mean they pretty much kicked them out of the parade they pretty much banned them from the parade yeah and in in that respect i guess the chief was doing what he thought was good i i see the black lives matter spokesperson uh, once again, I don't know why anybody quotes these people, listens to them, was jumping out saying, well, yeah, yeah, they're pulling out, but we banned them first. We already kicked them out. And they were very happy to say that they were there to kick them out. And, you know, Scott, one of the things we have to learn to do more as a community is we have to learn the art of forgiveness and dealing with people. To have, you know, the Black Lives Matter people bring up things that happened 30 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, and sit there and say, for that reason now, we're not including you people, we're banning you, we're shunning you. It sends the exact wrong message that the police are doing, that we're teaching our kids. I had somebody today... Sounds like Donald me. Trump. It's, he's, they're banning people. They're banning people from participating in a public event. Yeah, I, I'm not, I'm not going to go so far as it's, it's the same Trump thing. I've I got my issues with security and terrorism and things like that. But, but the issue here is this is not fitting in with what... Pride stands for, and I've seen a lot of people on my on my timeline who follow me, that are they're gay people who are big in the community, and they're they're totally disheartened by this, and they say that they're not going to participate and they're not going to show the support for this. So they're really not uh, doing a good job here. It will be interesting to see how the Pride executive handles this and 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 gets it out of this kangaroo court stage and into a you know a reputable organization. How do the, how does the police handle this moving forward? What do they do in the next year? Well, they feel very hurt by this. As I said, they feel insulted by this. They have worked hard and diligently to build relationships in that community. And look, I think they're very important relationships in the community. You know, the, the, the gay community, they have issues within their own place. There's issues with crimes, uh, uh, physical assaults against them, sex assaults between them, uh, domestic violence issues, mental health issues, suicide issues, where they have to be involved with the police. And let me tell you, there's nothing better than feeling like you can call the police or you've got a relationship with the police when you have to deal with a problem like that and you feel that you need help for your special circumstances. That's what you want. And, you know, the cops are doing their everything to be there for them to do that. And this is really getting in, getting in the way of that. Ross McLean has been with us, crime specialist, security expert, RossMcLeanSecurity.com, talking about Toronto Police issuing a statement this morning that they will in fact honour Toronto Pride Parade's request and will not attend the parade after being banned from participating in it. Uh, I think it's a step backwards. Ross, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks very much, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.